You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. A voice came from that burning bush. It was, it was God's voice that Moses heard that life-changing day out in the Midian Desert. God's voice said, take sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. As I've been preparing to feed you this morning from this passage and preparing for next Sunday's sermon as well, that verse has continued to come to my mind. The ground you're standing on is holy ground. Join me in John 17, if you will, please. The arrest of Jesus is imminent. In a matter of hours, he will be hanging upon a Roman cross. But now, this night before the crucifixion, Jesus prayed. Here in John chapter 17, we have the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible. For the last 1,500 years, Christian leaders have referred to this prayer as the high priestly prayer. It's a very personal prayer. It's the personal prayer of a perfectly loving and a perfectly loved Jesus talking to his heavenly Father. This prayer is both profound and passionate. It challenges our thinking, our minds, and it stirs our souls. It, it stirs our affections. It's as if we're peering into the heart of Jesus as he prepared to go to the cross. And in God's gracious providence, he allowed 11 of his apostles to hear this prayer. And through one of those, John, we're allowed to hear too. We get to benefit. Today, we're going to look at just five verses of John 17. Next Sunday, we'll read and explore the remaining verses, verses 6 through 26. I wish I had time today to read the whole chapter to you. I'm going to encourage you to do that at home, though. Would you do that? Would you make a commitment to sit down and read John 17 slowly, at least 10 or 15 times and soak in the glory of God. Let's take the sandals off our souls as we listen to the high priestly prayer of Jesus as he begins by praying for himself. The first five verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
what's happening here? What's the setting? Let me just briefly paint a picture for you of what we're seeing and hearing in John 17. What's the timing? Did you notice how this prayer begins in John 17, 1? When Jesus had spoken these words. What words? Well, all those words in the preceding chapters. You read John chapters 14, 15, 16. It's all one conversation. And we've mentioned this before here at CCC that uh, the Gospel of John starts in eternity past. In the beginning was the Word. And so you feel like he's sweeping us across the panorama of time. But he gets to those hours before the cross. He gets to those hours before Jesus is crucified. And John just slows down and seeks to remember all those things he saw and heard that life-changing, eternity-changing night. And so having seen Jesus washing the disciples' feet in chapter 13, then in chapters 14, 15, 16, Jesus has this profound conversation with his men in that upper room the night before the cross, having said these things, Jesus prayed. But it's interesting, we not only look back and saying the, after saying these things, but He's looking forward to, he says, the hour has come. Did you see that in verse 1? The hour has come. Did you ever notice how many times in the Gospel of John you hear something about the hour? For instance, there were times when people tried to kill Jesus. They tried to kill him, but they couldn't. And it says in the Bible, because his hour had not come. But now, on this night, Jesus says, the hour has come. What hour? What has everything been pointing to? What has everything been pointing to since eternity past? When it was ordained that Jesus would be the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, it was all coming to this hour, the hour of Jesus going to the cross. Jesus was fully aware, fully aware of what would be happening in the morning. That in a matter of hours, he would be hanging on that Roman cross. That's why he came. That's why he was sent. The hour's here. And so, Jesus prayed. Who all heard him pray? Judas has already left the band. His disciples gone to betray Jesus. So there were 11 left. These 11 disciples heard him pray. Now, if you notice here, it says that Jesus lifted his eyes toward heaven. What do we do in our American culture when we pray almost all the time? We, we, we bow our heads. We close our eyes. You know, and if you don't do that, you feel like you're sinning or something. <laughs> we have to bow our heads and close our eyes where it's not a real prayer. <laughs> well, you realize not every culture does it the way we do it. And in the Jewish culture, it was typical for people to turn their faces up toward heaven. You're talking to God in heaven and often raising their arms toward heaven. And so their posture was not always, but often different than ours. I mean, sometimes they would be on their faces, on the ground. But I would say usually they were upturned face, arms raised toward God, were talking to God. And they almost always prayed out loud. The Jews typically didn't pray silently. They prayed out loud. Wasn't that kind of the Lord? 
to do that so that we could hear his prayer 2,000 years after he prayed this prayer. Where was he when he prayed? I'm not going to belabor this point, but where was he when he prayed this prayer? Are you like me when you read the gospel accounts? Do you try to picture it? It helps me to picture it if I can. Well, if you go back to chapter 14, verse 31, after they had that last supper, the Passover meal, Jesus said, let's get up, let's arise and go from here. But if you read the beginning of chapter 18, right after this prayer, it says, when, they had, when he had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, if you're familiar with Gethsemane and Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, this is not it. That'll come in a, just a little while. So what we're reading in John 17 is not the prayer of Gethsemane. Jesus hasn't yet crossed the brook and gone up on the other side of the hill there to the east of Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane. So he's either still in the upper room, maybe they got up from the table and hadn't left the room yet, and Jesus prayed this prayer, or possibly on their walk from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, they maybe paused somewhere along the way. I can't prove it, and please don't take this as gospel truth, but I've often wondered if maybe they were in the temple courtyard, which would have been open because of the Passover feast, or maybe near it when Jesus prayed this prayer. What was at the heart of the prayer? When you read this, what is at the heart of this prayer in John chapter 17, the first five verses? Look at verse 1 again. It's essentially one thing. Jesus says in verse 1, glorify your son. And if you let your eyes drift down to verse 5, Jesus says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So it's actually two requests, but they're both for glory. He prays for glory now that his hour has come, and he prays for glory that would be restored like he had before he came to the earth. But both prayers are for glory. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does it mean, glory or glorify? Is, isn't that one of those words that's just kind of hard to define, you know? You know, sometimes, you know, people might ask a, a definition of some concrete item, and, and, you know, we can work it, and we can come up with a pretty clear definition of that concrete item. But other things are just kind of hard to come up with a sentence to describe, like beauty, what is beauty? Glory, what is glory? Well, if you look at the many places you find in the Bible, this is my feeble attempt. It usually has to do with radiating or emanating, blazing brilliance, breathtaking beauty, overwhelming splendor or power. As I was going over my notes for today, my mind drifted back to the end of Exodus. As Moses ends that particular book, the book of Exodus, he draws attention to God's overwhelming glory being in the tabernacle. Let me read to you in the closing verses of Exodus chapter 40. Moses writes there by the Holy Spirit, he says, The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled over it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So here's this overwhelming splendor, this overwhelming splendor. 
this soul-gripping beauty and power of the Lord. And as God came in His Shekinah, as God came in His Shekinah glory and settled into that tabernacle in the middle of the camp, even Moses, the friend of God, couldn't enter in. It was overwhelming, this glory of God. Interestingly, John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John, draws our attention to the glory of Jesus over and over again in his gospel account. I would say that the glory of Jesus Christ is one of the dominant themes in the gospel of John. I didn't do this, but I read someone else come up with the count of 42 times. 42 times John draws attention to the glory of Jesus Christ. How did John begin his gospel? How did he begin his account? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you drop down to verse 14 of chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt, or we could say tabernacled, among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see it? says, Jesus Christ came down. Jesus came down. And he tabernacled among us. And we've seen his glory. How did John see Jesus' glory? How did the other followers of Jesus Christ in this era see the glory of Jesus Christ? You don't need to answer that all up, but answer it in your head right now if you want. Can you think of some ways that they saw the glory of Jesus Christ? Well, in signs and miracles. In fact, John draws attention, even turning the water into wine. He makes a comment about Jesus' glory being seen in that, that miracle. Jesus healing the sick, giving lame people their ability to walk again, giving blind people their sight, calming the storm out on the lake. Raising Lazarus from the dead. Oh, John saw the glory of Jesus. He saw the godness of Jesus. He saw the glory. The Mount of Transfiguration. It's in a couple of gospel accounts, but in Matthew chapter 17, it says, Jesus took with him Peter and, and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them and his face, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. And so here's this inner circle of disciples with Jesus up on that mountain. The Father comes and he shows them. He reveals to them the glory of his Son. That this is God come in the flesh. And the Gospel writers say his face was like the sun. Oh, they, they saw the glory of Jesus Christ. But let's go back to John 17, 1. Let's go back there. And in John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. The hour has come. Soak in this for a minute. The hour has come. Glorify your Son. 
He's talking about the crucifixion. He's talking about his death on the cross in the morning. And he's saying, Father, in my crucifixion, in my gory death tomorrow, glorify me. He's asking that a father, his father glorify him so he in turn can glorify his Father. He's not asking for glory as an end in and of itself, but as a mean by which he in turn can honor his Father. The Son is honoring the Father. The Father is honoring the Son. So if God's glory is his overwhelming beauty and splendor on display, how does that happen in the cross? The painful Despicable, gory, gruesome crucifixion of Jesus. How are the Father and Son glorified in that? Now, I am going to ask you to help me out here, so please feel free to answer aloud if you care to. If you've been a follower of Christ for a while, I'm sure you've thought about this. What are some of the attributes of God? What are some of the characteristics of God that are on display, put on display in the cross work of Jesus Christ? If you speak first, you get the easy ones. Forgiveness. Wrath. Loving. Justice. Power. Redemption. Courage. Grace. Mercy. There are all these attributes of God put on display in the cross work of Jesus Christ. And as I've been reflecting on this personally, I think what especially captures my interest is the combination of his love and justice. How how do you... You know one of the most perplexing questions human beings have ever been faced with? How can God, who's perfectly holy, perfectly holy, can't even, Habakkuk says he can't even look at evil. How how can a God who is perfectly, absolutely holy ever pardon a sinner like you and a sinner like me? Many people think that God just kind of shrugs his divine shoulders and says, oh, well, what else are you going to do? Boys will be boys. Oh, far from it, my friends. Far from it. Justice must be met. Sin must be paid for. And that payment is ineffably high, indescribably high, because God's holiness is indescribably high. What could ever solve this problem? What could ever fix this dilemma of God being both just and the justifier of guilty sinners. Only through the crucifixion, the death, the bloody death of a perfect substitute, a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the only solution. It's the wisdom and the power of God on display that justice and mercy, as it says in the Psalms, it's as if they they kiss, they kiss. That in the cross of Jesus Christ, 
God's mercy, his grace, his love are melted together into his justice and his holiness. And the glory of God is on display in such a way that it, our mouths should drop open. I often think of it this way. The plan of redemption serves in a way, the cross of Jesus Christ serves in a way as a canvas on which God, the master artist, is painting his self-portrait. And God wants to put on display his, his glory. He wants to put on display all these splendorous attributes of, of mercy and grace and love and justice and righteousness. And so it's as if he uses the cross as, as a canvas on which to paint his attributes, his self-portrait, his glory. One of the more mysterious passages in the Bible, no doubt, is Romans 9. But my mind went to verse 23. It says there, in order to make known, in order to put on display, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. When Romans 9, Paul very specifically says, that this whole plan of redemption serves the ultimate purpose of putting God's glory on display. Now we often think of salvation as be, being primarily for our benefit. God saved me so I wouldn't go to hell. That's true. Praise God. But you realize there's a bigger picture behind that. There's a panorama behind that. And that is that God saves guilty sinners ill-deserving sinners, not just undeserving, ill-deserving sinners, through the crucifixion of his son as an opportunity, we would say, to put his glory on display. He says, look, and behold, my glory, where my mercy and my justice will kiss at the cross of my innocent son as he dies in the place of guilty sinners. Jesus said, glorify. The hour has come, Father. The hour has come. Glorify your Son. That your Son might glorify you tomorrow as I hang on that cross. Jesus says in verse 2, He says, just as or since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him, and we could spend an hour or so just on that verse, but let me try to summarize as quickly as I can. Jesus is making a phenomenal statement here. Somewhere in eternity past in the counsels of God that are left to uh, a mystery to us in some ways, it says that God the Son, Jesus Christ, was given authority over all flesh. You know what that means? Every human being who has ever lived, Every human being who's alive right now, including you and me and people on the other side of the world, anyone who is ever going to be born, all flesh, is under the authority of Jesus Christ. You were made by him and for his glory. And all of us will give an account on whether we have done so or not if we've given him glory. God the Father gave God the Son authority over all flesh, and then couched within that general, that universal gift, is a very specific gift, a, a particular gift. 
And Jesus refers to those whom you have given me. And if you study in particular the Gospel of John, you will find that phrase in a number of places. Those whom you have given me. That there are those who have been designated as a gift from the Father to the Son. You can refer to them as the elect, the chosen, uh, this group of people that were given by the Father to the Son. And the Son, Jesus Christ says, I came to redeem my people. That I might give eternal life to all whom you have given me. That specificity that particularity in God's plan of redemption. If you're here today as a believer, you and I should wander at God's grace that he would include us in that group. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Back in John chapter 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John said in his prologue, chapter 1, he says that no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, referring to Jesus, has made him known. So Jesus came to show us the Father. And as God does his miracle of grace in our lives, we know God. And so sometimes if we're talking to our friends who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ, we like to ask the question, do you know Jesus? Now that might be confusing to a lot of people, you know, if they're not used to that nomenclature, uh, do you know Jesus? But we're not talking merely about cognizance of intellectual knowledge, you know, like, oh yeah, Jesus, he was a Jewish guy who lived back in the first century, right? I mean, that's not what it's talking about. When it says know here, it's talking about a relationship. This is eternal life that they know you and me, your son whom you've sent. Friends, isn't that what we were created for? If you go back to the Garden of Eden in the opening chapters of the Bible, that God made human beings as his image bearers, some special creation that could relate to him the way no other aspect of creation could relate to God, that we would know him. That's what we were redeemed for, that we would know him. Jesus says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. You know what? Not one of us can ever say that. <laughs> the work's never done, is it? You clean the house and it needs cleaned again, depending on the age of your children, an hour later or a week later. <laughs> you change oil in your car and you've got to change it again in four or 5,000 miles. You know, the work's never done. But Jesus said, I finished. I finished the work you gave me to do. The only person that's been able to say that with integrity. What work? What work did Jesus finish? Well, I, I would say it this way. And I'm leaning on some theologians that precede me, obviously. But theologians sometimes refer to Jesus' act of obedience. What they mean by that is how Jesus always did what the Father wanted. It was an act of obedience. Jesus himself said things like, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Or Paul would write that Jesus was born under the law. Here Jesus, as God, was the lawgiver, and yet when he came as a human being, he submitted himself to be under God's law. 
And then he fulfilled it. He, he perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He always did what was right, always what God wanted. He, he never once did something God said not to do. And he never neglected to do something God said to do. Jesus perfectly obeyed his heavenly Father. And a phrase we like to use here at CCC is, uh, Jesus lived a life that you and I should have lived, but didn't. His life was substitutionary in that sense, that he stood in our place in his act of obedience. But obviously, as he looks forward to his crucifixion in the next day, it's also referring to his death, what the theologians refer to as his passive obedience, that he yielded to being crucified. And in that sense, he took our place. In my place, condemned he stood. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. I'm about to go to the cross. Glorify me that I might glorify you. How am I going to do that? By giving eternal life to all those whom you've given me. God the Father and God the Son are glorified in your salvation and in my salvation. But Jesus prays for glory a second time, doesn't he? And if we read carefully, we'll notice, even though it's similar in many ways, it has a different application. Look at verse 5 again. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is praying for glory now a second time But now he's looking not so much at tomorrow morning as when he will ascend back to heaven and be coronated. And so he wants wants to be glorified in the cross. He also wants to be glorified in the crown, in the coronation. He wants God the Father to reverse his humiliation in coming to this planet. Friends, hang with me for a few minutes here. What was life like for Jesus before he came to this earth? What was life like for Jesus in heaven before he was conceived in the womb of Mary? That's how John begins his gospel, doesn't he? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him, not anything was made that was made. You realize when we read the opening verses of the Bible in Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. The God, the Son, the pre-incarnate, the pre-flesh Jesus spoke those words. Creator God. What was life like for Jesus before Bethlehem, before conception in Mary's womb? He was a creator God. I'll tell you one that blows my socks off is Isaiah 6, where Isaiah says, I I saw the Lord, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the other would answer, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah, 
I, I said, woe is, is me. For I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And you read that in Isaiah 6, and you say, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. It was the, the display of His glory was so stupendous, so overwhelming that Isaiah was undone, unglued. I'm lost. I'm a sinner in the presence of the Holy God. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 41, the Apostle John says that Isaiah saw him, saw Jesus, and spoke of him. Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Christ. We could read other passages in the Old Testament to give us at least a small glimpse of what life was like for Jesus before he was conceived in Mary's womb. He was the object of the adoration of the angelic beings. The whole earth was full of his glory. And we want to turn and ask the opposite question then. What is life like for Jesus now looking forward? As we, as, as we look forward into eternity, what is life like for him now? I struggle with knowing what to pick, but let me read to you from the Gospel of John, same author, chapter 1 in the book of Revelation. He says this, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And, and in their midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet, they were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice... His voice was like the roar of, of, of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face, his face was shining like the sun shining in its full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me. Fear not. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I remind us that the Apostle John was one of Jesus' closest friends on this earth. One of his closest friends. But when this man who had been so close to Jesus for over three years saw the glorified Jesus Christ, he, like Isaiah of old, became undone. He said, I, I fell down as though dead. Seeing the glory of Jesus Christ in heaven was overwhelming. Until Jesus reminded him, you don't need to be afraid, John. So, that's what life was like in eternity past. 
that's what life for Jesus is like now and into eternity future. What was life like for Jesus when he walked this planet? What was life like for him in those 33 years? I think of verses even from the Gospel of John. He, he came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. He was ignored, slandered. I think of the way Paul said it in Philippians 2. He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The word there has the idea of clung to. Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be clung to, but, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Years ago, I was reading a devotional book called 100 Portraits of Christ. Not a well-known book at all, but the author said this. I found it. It says, the Christ who walked the dusty roads of Galilee was the God who had roamed through the paths of galaxies. The Christ who lit the lakeside fire on which to cook breakfast for his tired, hungry disciples had lit a billion stars and hung them in the midnight sky. He who asked the outcast for a drink had filled with water every river, lake, and ocean. Christ became God's self-disclosure. In Jesus, God entered humanity. Eternity invaded time. There was that one who Isaiah saw who came to this planet taking on the form of as a real human being, sinless human being, didn't live a high and easy life, but took on the form of a servant, and not just any servant, but one willing to die, not just any kind of death, a death on a cross. I didn't finish reading that passage in Philippians 2 yet, did I? It's glorious. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, what's the takeaway? We read a passage like this. How does it impact us? How does it shape us? Let me give you two words of counsel or two phrases. How should we be impacted? And I include myself. The first, I would say, is awestruck worship. Awestruck worship. Friends, worship becomes trivial. Worship becomes dull and boring when God is small in our eyes. As I've been thinking about this, meditating on this, it strikes me afresh that this is, this is the old ploy of Satan all over again. The tactics he, he used on Eve and Adam, he still uses today. He, he uses these old tools of trying to make God small in people's eyes and trying to make themselves look big. Why, why keep yourself under the authority of God when you could be God? 
when you can just do what you want to do. You don't have to listen to God. That's what he did with Eve and Adam, and, and that's what he does with us today. And Satan's old ancient ploy is to seek to convince us that God is actually rather small, and we are actually kind of big. And so we become focused on ourselves and our estimation of God, how we see God, our affections for God wither. And we begin to think more of ourselves, thinking about ourselves, talking about ourselves, promoting ourselves, pursuing our own glory. And as we pursue our own glory at the sacrifice of glorifying Him, we become glory thieves. We're, we're glory thieves. And the astonishing reality is that when we steal his glory, we're robbing ourselves. We're robbing ourselves. As we go on this unholy, this sinful quest to glorify ourselves, we're missing out on the very purpose of our creation. God said in Isaiah 53, 7 that we were made for his glory. That's what we were made for. We were made to, to be astonished in the presence of God. We've been created for that. And if we're redeemed, we've been redeemed for that. And yet we lose sight of God. I know a few of you have heard me use this illustration before. If you'll allow me to repeat it. and It would be like going to one of those overlooks at the Grand Canyon. Some of you have been there. Even if you've never been to the Grand Canyon, I know you've seen photos. And at the Grand Canyon, they have a number of these big overlooks where people can go out there and look down in astonished wonder at the grandeur of the Grand Canyon. And imagine walking up to one of those overlooks at the Grand Canyon, and there's some guy standing pretty much on the edge of the Grand Canyon, not facing the canyon, but facing the people coming from their cars and buses. And he's strutting around. He's strutting around on the edge of that, that overlook. And he's saying, hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. Ain't I something? Ain't I something? Hey, 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 look at me. And the people walking to the overlook begin whispering among themselves. And they're saying things like, that guy's deranged. That guy's just plain old crazy. And then someone has the courage to shout at him, hey, buddy, turn around. man turns around and he, he, looks, he looks at the Grand Canyon and his self-attention getting praise ends. He puts his hand over his mouth and he stops his strutting because he realizes how small he looks there at the edge of the Grand Canyon. And my friends, it's the insanity of sin in which we make God small and ourselves big. And as we rob God of his glory, we're robbing ourselves of the joy of basking in his glory. And so one takeaway from John 17, 1 through 5, is that we be moved to awe-struck worship. Awe-struck worship. Are you intentionally, are you intentionally pursuing Christ? Are you making time? 
My friends, I, I often think I, when I have my devotional times in the mornings, I like to put my Bible on my lap, open it to where I'm reading, and I, I pray a short prayer. And what I pray most mornings is this, Holy Spirit, let me see Christ today. Simple prayer. Let me see Christ today. And you know what, Christian friends? I pray that prayer in great faith. In great faith. Because 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit wants to do in my life. He wants Jesus Christ to be seen in my life. He wants me to be amazed, transformed in the presence of Jesus Christ. As I contemplate Him. So if you have found your worship becoming dull and trivial, yawning, boring, can I ask you to repent and pray along with me, Holy Spirit, let me see Christ. Let me see the glory of my Savior. And He'll do that. And if you're truly converted, I believe you'll find your cool heart beginning to warm. That your astonishment of Jesus will increase. And your private worship, the worship you have with your family, the way you talk about Him with your life group, as you join in the corporate worship here at CCC, that you find yourself singing a little more loudly, a little more passionately, that sometimes the tears are flowing or there's a smile on your face when you say in your worship, isn't He something? Isn't He something? The second word of pastoral counsel I have for you this morning from this passage is this. Awestruck worship. Secondly, assurance-soaked courage. I worked on that one. Assurance-soaked courage. Remember the context. Remember the context of this prayer. What's the last thing we read before chapter 17? I better find it. The last verse of 16 is this. Jesus, quoting Jesus, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And when we read Jesus' request of the Father here to be glorified, we should have assurance-soaked courage. Jesus said, Father, you've given me authority over all flesh. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, right now, while we're sitting here in Winona Lake, Indiana, Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne of heaven. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and He is the ruler, the head of our church. Nothing catches Him by surprise. Nothing is outside the realm of His power. Why, then, should we fear? I know there's times when we go through seasons of doubt, we wrestle with our unworthiness of God's grace. And we can begin to fear, what if God rejects me on that day? And friend, let me remind you, if you're here today as a believer, that your, your salvation is secure as Jesus Christ himself. It's as secure as the cross of Jesus Christ. What did we sing this morning? What did we sing? When Satan tempts me to despair... And tells me of the guilt within. What do we do? Finish it for me. 
Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. And as we read Jesus Christ's words here in John 17, we should be moved with assurance-soaked courage. When Satan comes and tells us of our unworthiness, we can say, oh, you don't know the half of it, Satan. But you take it up with my Savior. Take it up with him. Don't come accusing me. Take it up with my Savior. Now my friends are so assured to know that my Lord, my God, my Savior, he will hold me fast. That your security in Christ and mine gives us courage to live for him. And not only that, but Jesus said in this world you're going to have tribulation. We live in a hostile world, and I think those of us who are a little bit older, we we would say to those of you that you're younger, it's probably getting harder to be a Christian in our culture. It's always been hard in some cultures. It's getting harder in ours, and probably will get harder in the coming days. What's going to What's going to solidify our souls, what's going to give us humble courage, is you live and I live in this hostile world. It's the fact that our Savior has been given authority over all flesh. When we look at him, just thinking about this. Stephen was one of the first martyrs in the church. And he was stoned for preaching the gospel stoned by religious people. And you read that account in Acts. And Stephen says, I, I looked up and I saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, usually Jesus is pictured seating, seated at the right hand of the Father. But Stephen saw him standing. And I know it's my imagination, but I wonder if Jesus stepped forward to receive Stephen. Did he stand up off his throne and say, come home, son. Come home, son. Even if you and I are martyred for the faith, well, they might hurt us, but they can't destroy us because we are secure in Christ. He will hold us fast. We should have courage, assurance-soaked courage. What did Jesus say right before he went back to heaven? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, Go and make disciples. We have every reason to have courage. Some of you are here today, and I don't see anybody's heart. I, I can't know your heart, but I would guess in a room this size. Some of you are here today thinking, what's the big deal? Larry, you're so excited about something, and I don't get it. What's so impressive about Jesus Christ? Why are you so excited? I don't see the glory of Christ. Well, please hear me out, friend. If that's your situation where you're saying, I'm not impressed with Jesus, please know that I'm not picking on you because something is true of every one of us in this room. Every one of us in this room was at one time under the spell of Satan. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, listen, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. Every human being is born with the sin genes of Adam and Eve. When we're born under the spell of the God of this age, 
who doesn't want us to see Christ. He doesn't want Jesus Christ to be honored in our affections and our thinking and our lives. And so he blinds people to the glory of Christ. And if you're here today and you're saying, I'm not impressed with Christ. I don't, I don't see this glory you're talking about me. What are you supposed to do with that? What are you supposed to do with that? Let me tell you a story as we wrap things up here in a minute or two. The week before Jesus prayed this prayer, the week before, he walked from Galilee down to Jerusalem, about 90 miles. The last town he went through before he got to Jerusalem, the last town of any size, was Jericho. And as he was going through Jericho, he encountered a man was blind. I'll tell you what, let me just read it to you. This is from Luke 18. As he drew near Jesus, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And so this blind man cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him, rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped, commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people who saw it gave praise to God. And if you're here today and you are not impressed with Jesus Christ, as a friend, let me tell you, your blindness to Jesus Christ is the effect of the God of this age that he has on you. He's blinding you. He doesn't want you to see the glory of Christ. And so if you're finding yourself bored with Christ, disinterested in Christ, I encourage you to do what this blind man of Jericho did. Cry out, cry out, son of David, have mercy on me. And you confess your sinful blindness. And you ask the master, I want to see. I want to He'll do it. He'll give you sight. He'll give the eyes of your heart sight that you can see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And you find yourself captivated by Him, not only now, but for eternity. Would you do that today?